Good morning, everyone. Let's pray and we'll get started with today's message. Lord, thank you so much for your grace and your kindness and your mercy. Thank you, Lord, that this is an opportunity to come to you in prayer with confidence because of the shed blood of Jesus Christ. And I ask, Lord, that this would be a time where we're engaged in worshiping you, Lord, that as we are in your word, we thank you that the promises that it does not return void. And we ask, Lord, that you do exactly what you promised it would do, that it would equip us, that it would encourage us, that it would convict us, that it would train us. And, Lord, that we would ultimately leave this place more like your son Jesus in the way that we think, the way that we speak, and the way that we live. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, I'm sure this would never happen here. But at some churches, people sit in the same spot every single week, okay? Yeah, sure it doesn't happen here, but in a lot of places it does. Now, at this one particular church on this one particular Sunday morning, there was this rambunctious, rowdy little six-year-old boy. Now, again, because everybody sat in the same place every single week, everybody knew what they were getting into week in and week out with this six-year-old boy right there. Because six-year-old boys have feet on their rear end. I mean, they can just scoot around on that rear end, on that pew. They can go up and down no problem. Sometimes they're even standing. Sometimes they're drawing. Sometimes they're drawing on you. You never quite know with a six-year-old boy what's going to come out of it. But on this one particular morning, this boy was getting extremely rambunctious to the point where not just the people around him were noticing, but everybody in the whole church had their eyes, their gaze fixed on this six-year-old boy. And so finally, the father felt the heat inside of him just rising up as everybody is staring at his son. And so he stands up and he scoops up his six-year-old and he starts walking out that back door. Now, in that moment, that six-year-old boy is pretty sure that best-case scenario is a timeout. And this is not a best-case scenario situation. So he's proverbially going to get taken back behind the woodshed. And he does not want to go back there. He's been there. doesn't want to return again. And in a moment of brilliance, he realizes that there's only one hope. And so he yells out to the congregation, Y'all pray for me now! (laughs) Now let me ask you this question. Would you agree with this statement? By a show of hands, prayer is powerful. Yes? Amen? Prayer is powerful. Yes. But interestingly enough, even though prayer is powerful, sometimes prayer can be a little bit awkward, especially when we get into groups. I don't know about you, but for me, I didn't grow up in the church. I didn't grow up in prayer circles. So becoming a Christian at 18, standing, holding hands was a new thing. That wasn't something that I experienced a whole lot of in my life up until that point was hand-holding in circles in public. That just wasn't something that is widely done, especially with people who wanted to interlock fingers. That felt very intimate to me. I wasn't fully prepared for that type of advancement upon my hands. And so in this one particular situation, I was in youth group, and the youth pastor was to my left, and and he had us all holding hands, and he said, we're going to pray. We're going to pray out loud. Now think about that, right? Group of Christians praying out loud. Prayer is powerful. This should be a powerful moment. And so he said, but listen, if you're not comfortable praying out loud, all you got to do is squeeze your neighbor's hands, and that's a pass. And so he prayed. It's a very eloquent prayer. I mean, beautiful prayer. I mean, 
he does get paid to pray, right? I mean, he was a pastor, so like he should be good at it. And so he finishes. Silence. More silence. More silence. Until finally I feel my hand get squeezed. They had just passed that squeeze all the way around that circle until it got to me. And I was like, what? Everybody passed and I'm the last one. And now I'm going to squeeze this guy's hand. He can pray again. He's getting paid to do it. Come on. See, the reality is, is that even though we all know that prayer is powerful, we all say it that in this moment where we all get together as believers and it should be even more powerful, sometimes it gets awkward, right? Sometimes it gets uncomfortable. Sometimes we're actually more focused on ourselves than we are the Lord. Sometimes we're more like, oh my goodness, they just stole my prayer. I was going to pray that. We spend more time thinking about what we're going to pray than actually praying, right? Now, even though sometimes prayer is awkward, if we're really honest, there's some very frustrating moments in prayer. Those moments when we go into our prayer closet and we continue to petition the Lord over and over and over again and we feel such clear conviction that the thing we are asking the Lord for is a good thing, a thing that he should support, a thing that he should be delivering on and it's just radio silence. And it feels like our prayer is just hitting the ceiling and it's not going anywhere. Anyone been there with me? Where prayer, although we know it's powerful, begins to feel empty. To the point where we don't even know what to say anymore. To the point where we begin to give up on the practice of prayer. And so, ladies and gentlemen, if we're honest, we know that prayer is powerful. But in practice, sometimes it's awkward or sometimes it even feels completely empty. So as believers, what do we do about that? Well, I want to go into the scriptures with you this morning. And I want to look at a powerful prayer a life-changing prayer, and see what we can glean from that prayer and perhaps something that needs to be adopted or altered in our own prayer life. And it's perhaps an unusual place to go for prayer. But we're going to go to the book of 1 Kings chapter 18. 1 Kings chapter 18. So we're going to Old Testament. We're picking up in a time period where the kingdom of Israel is divided in half. There's a northern kingdom referred to as Israel, and there's a southern kingdom referred to as Judah. And during this time period, the northern kingdom has no good kings, but the king who is king at this time, Ahab, is the worst king that Israel has had to this point. This guy is 100% comfortable with idol worship, meaning that he's 100% comfortable building temples and encouraging the people of Israel to worship false gods. Not only that, but to engage in false worship practices. So what does that mean? So that means in this setting, in this culture, is that they, they would do things. Like they would build a shrine on a high place. And then they would put women up there and make them prostitutes. 
And then they would tell people that what the gods want you to do is they want you to go up into that high place and they want you to have relations with those prostitutes because that's going to be pleasing to these false gods. And if you do that, then we'll get the things that we need like rain and crops and money. So it wasn't just like they were just going into a room and lighting some plants on fire. I mean, their entire life was arranged around these deranged habits. That's the spiritual culture of Israel in the northern kingdom where we're picking up in 1 Kings 18. And Ahab is the worst of the worst in this. Now, you can follow along with me, but just real quick, we're going to show that. I'm going to tell you that Ahab, I'll summarize it, and then we'll get into the main chunk of this for your time's sake. Out of nowhere, this prophet named Elijah shows up, and he tells Ahab, Ahab, it's not going to rain until I say it's going to rain here in Israel. Now, that raises a question. Why in the world would a prophet of God, a prophet of Yahweh, tell the king it's not going to rain of all the things that he could possibly say? Well, you have to understand that this, the false god they're worshiping, his name is Baal. Perhaps you've heard it pronounced Baal or Baal. But Baal is a storm god, this false god. And so all of the Israelites are making these sacrifices to Baal, thinking that Baal is going to make it rain. Now, our God, the Lord, Yahweh, is a jealous God. Our God is a very patient God. Very just God. But there's one thing he is not fond of, and that's his people worshiping idols. When he sends rain, who should receive worship and praise? The true God. But what's everybody else doing? They're having extramarital affairs with prostitutes, and then when it rains, they give credit to that God. So Elijah shows up as the mouthpiece of God and says, no more, not going to do that. So if you think that works, we're going to show you something. It doesn't work. Drought. So this drought goes on for three and a half years. Ahab shows back up with Elijah. Ahab looks at Elijah and says, you, ritual disruptor, you troublemaker, you ruiner of Israel. And Elijah looks back at him and says, me? <laughs> no, no, no. You're the disruptor of Israel because you're the one encouraging everybody to worship false gods. And then they set up this contest. He says, let's go up to a high place, Mount Carmel, and let's see who's really God. You bring your false prophets of Baal, and I'll show up, bring the people of Israel, and we'll determine that day who is God. So we're up on top of Mount Carmel. Elijah and these prophets of Baal and the people of Israel. And Elijah puts forth this contest. He says, listen, we're going to take two bulls. We're going to cut it up. And we're going to have a sacrifice. You're going to have your bull. I'm going to have my bull. And we're going to call down fire from heaven. And if fire comes down on your sacrifice, Baal is God. And if fire comes down on my sacrifice, Yahweh is God. And he looks at all the people of Israel, and they all go, it's a good idea, right? Because let's think about it for a moment from the Israelite standpoint. The Israelites, they need to live. They need to eat. They need to have something to sell. Most of these people are just trying to get by. And we can relate to that, right? Just being in a position where we're trying to get by. 
And so at some point, when you're just trying to get by, and it's a grind to get by, then you start become pretty open. You become pretty pragmatic. Well, hey, if it works, who am I to argue with it? I mean, shouldn't we just go with what works instead of what's written in this old book? So they're going, hey, we got a spectacle on hand. I mean, would that not be wild to be standing there to see fire come down from heaven? Like, yeah, let's see a show. Let's do it. I mean, we go to fireworks, right? <laughs> Let alone seeing fire come down and light a piece of meat on fire, right? <laughs> this is exciting stuff here. So let's pick up. If you have a copy of the scriptures, make sure you're there with me. 1 Kings 18. I'm going to start in verse um, 25. So Elijah tells the prophets to choose a bull, and they can go first. Verse 26. They took the bull that was given them. They prepared it, called upon the name of Baal from morning until noon, saying, O Baal, answer us. But there was no voice. No one answered. And they limped around the altar that they had made. And at noon, Elijah mocked them, saying, Cry aloud, for he is a god. Either he's musing or he's relieving himself or he's on a journey or perhaps he's asleep and must be awakened. Okay, pause right there. So, okay, so you got all of these prophets. You got this dead piece of meat on some wood. Okay, think about this. And what do they do from morning until noon? Okay, so 6, 8 in the morning till noon. Somewhere between four to six hours. What do they do? They are dancing around a piece of dead meat. Imagine that for a second, right? Hundreds of guys all dancing around a piece of dead meat for hours. What does the text say? There's no voice, nothing happens, it's just silence. And so Elijah engages. And one of the most important things ever created, sarcasm. <laughs> and he says to them, what's going on? Just say it louder. Maybe he's sleeping. Maybe he's in the loo. <laughs> now, as somebody whose love language is sarcasm, Okay. I'm just going to take a moment to go on this little tangent and just say this. Sarcasm, while it may be perceived as a weakness, which some have perceived it in me, because I'm speaking out of past hurt and trauma, and I'm a frail human being, and that's why I'm deflecting using sarcasm, I would just like to point out that our Lord Jesus Christ asked to the Jewish leaders, of which of these good deeds are you going to stone me for? You know what that is? That's sarcasm, right? And I'm just going to go out on a limb here and say that Jesus, being the Son of God and holy, was not dealing with some frail mommy-daddy issues that he was speaking out of sarcasm for, okay? I'm just going to say sarcasm is the humor of the Lord, and Elijah is engaging it right now, okay? That's all I'm going to say. All right. Tangent over, okay? But one more thing, Okay? You have to be very important when engaging in sarcasm because not everybody understands sarcasm, okay? It is a different language. 
In my home, we spoke it so frequently and so fluently that I didn't even know we were speaking in a different language until I became a Christian, started hanging out with Christians, and nobody understood what I was saying. But I feel like I'm in good company right now. But here's the danger. Sometimes people take you seriously. See, Elijah was using sarcasm to try to help these prophets of Baal to realize that what they're doing is a fruitless endeavor. So he's mocking them. But what happens after he tells them to cry aloud? Verse 28, and they cried aloud, and they cut themselves after their customs with swords and lances until the blood gushed out upon them. And as midday passed, they traveled on until the time of the offering of the oblation, but there was no voice, no one answered, no one paid attention. So Elijah engaged in sarcasm, and what did they do? They took it seriously, right? He said, cry louder. So what do they do? They cried louder. And then, look at that. According to their customs, they began to cut themselves as they continued to dance around this piece of meat until the afternoon offering around 4 p.m. Okay. Now, for a moment here, let's just get how gruesome and a graphic image this really is. With all of these men dancing around a dead piece of meat. For what? For what? For an idol. For a false god. For a figment of their imagination. For something that's not real. Now it's pretty tempting to look at this scene and go, those silly primitive people. How dumb. But if we look at it a different way. A little bit more objectively, perhaps we can see something about ourselves. What's an idol? Something that we go to, something we worship for deliverance, for peace, for security, for hope, for comfort. Now, I'm not suggesting that anyone here in this room has a little figurine that they're praying to, hoping it's going to bring some rain. I mean, you live in Chicago. It's not really a problem like it is in Israel. But there is something else that you're looking towards, that you're chasing after, other than God, that you're hoping is going to bring some relief, bring some comfort, bring some joy, that relationship, that promotion, that status, that sense of achievement in self. I mean, it's not uncommon for us to engage in idol worship today. Does it look differently? Yeah, it looks differently. But the reality is, is that the temptation still remains for us to be willing to give everything to something that ultimately means nothing. That is the temptation for each and every one of us. That's what all of them are dealing with. The temptation to give everything to something that ultimately means nothing. John Calvin said the heart is an idol-making factory. You get rid of one, the temptation pops up for another one. So what happens next? Well, finally, Elijah steps in. Verse 30. Then Elijah said to all the people, come near to me. And all the people came near to him. 
And he repaired the altar of the Lord that had been thrown down. Elijah took 12 stones according to the number of the tribes of the sons of Jacob, to whom the word of the Lord came, saying, Israel shall be your name. And with the stones he built an altar in the name of the Lord, and he made a trench around the altar as great as would contain two seas of seed. And he put the wood in order and cut the bowl in pieces and laid it on the wood. And he said, fill four jars with water and pour on the burnt offering and on the wood. And he said, do it a second time. And they did it a second time. And he said, do it a third time. And they did it a third time. And the water ran around the altar and filled the trench also with water. Let's pause there. What's happening? Three key things I want you to see that just happened here. First, Elijah calls the people of Israel near. The last thing that Elijah wants to have happen in this moment is for the Israelites to think that they're simply spectators. What Elijah knows to be true is that if this fire is going to come down from heaven, if the Lord's going to deliver on this promise, that the Israelites aren't simply spectators, that they can sit on the fence, go one side or the other, but this is dealing with their very soul. They're not spectators, they are participants. He wants them on the field. That's why I believe he's drawing them near, not far off, so that they understand this has everything to do with them and their spiritual condition. Second, he rebuilds these 12 stones. This should send our mind back to when the Israelites crossed the Jordan River building 12 stones as a memorial marker that the Lord delivered the Israelites into the land of Israel. And so this is what he wants them to see. The same God, Yahweh, who brought the, that people into that land, made good on his promise to their father Abraham. That's the same God that is going to deliver them today. The same God that brought them into the land is the same God that preserves them in the land. So he's connecting them with the historical redemptive work of what God has done. And then finally, the water. The water. What's up with all the water? It's so much water. <laughs> think about it. You think skeptics is a new phenomenon? As long as there's been people, there's been skeptics. And so we're in a three and a half year drought in Israel. This is serious. Everything is dry. The whole thing could go up like that, just from a spark. And so the last thing that Elijah wants to have happen is that what is going to happen next is given over to just coincidence. Oh, it just so happened that when Elijah prayed, everything caught on fire. But, I mean, it was probably all going to catch on fire anyways. No, 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 no. We're going to douse this thing where it's so wet. It's so wet that beyond a shadow of a doubt, what happens next is going to be an act of God. Not a coincidence, but a true miracle. And credit has to be given where credit is due. Now, verse 36. And at the time of the offering of the oblation, Elijah the prophet came near and said, O Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that you, our God in Israel, and that I am your servant, and that I have done all these things at your word. 
Answer me, O Lord, answer me, that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God, and that you have turned their hearts back. Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offerings and the wood and the stones and the dust and licked up the water that was in the trench. And when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and they said, The Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. Wow. Talk about a powerful prayer. I mean, he didn't even say amen and fire fell down. Licked up everything, completely gone, and the Israelites had the appropriate response. They fell prostrate, and they were worshiping God. That was the right response. So what is it in this prayer that makes it a powerful prayer? Is it Elijah? Is it the setting? I think there's three things in this prayer that I think our prayer should be marked by. Notice the first thing, that when Elijah is praying to God, how does he address him? One, he addresses him as the Lord, as Yahweh. And then he says this, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel. Israel also being known as Jacob. So when Elijah is praying to God, he is identifying God with his redemptive acts. Elijah knows exactly who he's praying to. God is not an obtuse, distant figure in his mind. He is very, very clear on who God is. And so let me ask you this question. When you go to prayer, how clearly... Do you know the one that you're praying to? There is a strong and prevailing temptation to stay pretty obtuse, pretty average, pretty unclear, uncertain in who we're talking to. That our, our idea of who God is is a distant person. This figure that created things, it's out there. It's not informed by scriptures. It's not informed that he's a personal God, that he's a present God, that he's a transcending God, that he's a loving God. So when you pray, how clearly do you know who you're praying to? The Lord has spent an immense amount of work revealing who he is and redemptive history. He has spent an immense amount of effort in revealing his character. Yet for us, in the 21st century, even though this is so prevalent, our literacy is way down. As Christians, we have this propensity to think that things like theology is for somebody else or that theology is where there's arguments and there's problems and so let's not do it. And the result is, is that when we go to pray, we really don't know who we're praying to. But Elijah, Elijah knows exactly who he's praying to. He knows exactly who his God is. He knows exactly what his God has done. And he knows exactly what the Lord is capable of doing. So that's first and foremost, that we have to answer this question, do we know who we're praying to? Second, notice how he identifies himself in the prayer. 
He says, I am a servant of the Lord. Elijah, in his prayer, understands himself in relationship to who God is. For you and I, there's a strong and prevailing mindset that we are an individual, that we are an autonomous being, that we get to determine our own identity, that we are separate from God. But the reality is, ladies and gentlemen, that if you have placed your faith in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, that you believe that Jesus died on the cross to pay for your sins and that he rose from the grave to give you new life, then you are no longer your own. That you have been transferred from being a servant to death and to sin to being a servant to Jesus to life everlasting. That you have been adopted as sons and daughters of the God Most High. That you have a prevailing position in heaven because of who Jesus is. Do you know who you are when you go to pray? Not because of who you think you are or who the world says you are, but because of who Jesus says you are. Do you know who you are? That's the second thing. So first thing is, do you know who you're praying to? Second, do you know who you are in light of who he is and what he's done? Third, do you know why you're praying what you're praying? Look at this. He says, oh, Lord, answer me that this people may know that you, O oh Lord, are God and that you have turned your hearts back. The why in Elijah's prayer is very clear. And notice that his why is not this. Oh Lord, please answer my prayer because this would be super embarrassing if nothing happened. <laughs> right? But if I'm being honest, a lot of my prayers, the why is the alleviation of suffering. Lord, make my life easier. Lord, make my road smoother. Lord, meet my needs. It's more like, Lord, may my will be done in heaven as it's done on earth. As opposed to, Lord, may your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, right? And I was so, so convicted of this as I was studying through this passage. I was thinking about a friend that I've been praying for for literally 20 years. 20 years for this person to come to faith in Jesus. I've shared the gospel. I've shared my testimony. I've shared the truth of Scripture. No result. I've had zero contact for a number of years, but I continue to pray faithfully that this person will come to faith. But I realized something in studying this prayer, and it's this, that my why behind praying for this person's salvation was to help make their life better, make their life easier, to take away the pain. You see, this person had made a whole slew of bad decisions. And those decisions have made other decisions exponentially harder. Anybody know that person in your life? That they make a decision, they make a bad one? I'm related to a couple of those people. And this is what I realized. My prayer was never about the glory of God. My prayer was never about God receiving praise for the transformation of bringing this person from death to to life. It was only about them. It was never about God. 
And that cut me right to the heart. Because that's not a very good why to what we pray. So I have to ask you this question. Why are you praying what you're praying? What is your motivation? Is it all about self? Is it all about ease in this life? Or is it about glory to God? About lifting his name on high? You see, for Elijah, he knows exactly who he's praying to. He knows exactly who he is based on who God is. And he knows exactly why he's praying. So that way every Israelite will know that it's God who's turning their hearts back. God is the why. And for me, guys, this is hard. This is hard. It's hard to be so intentional that when we pray that it's not just this knee-jerk reflective action of mimicking words back that we've heard other people pray. But think about this. We're engaging in conversation with the creator and the sustainer of everything. We're engaging with the one who not only created us, but the one that's able to give us eternal life. Should this simply be something that is a reflexive action? Should this simply be something that we do because other people are doing it? Is this something that we should be engaging in half-heartedly, mindlessly? I think not. I think we're going to go and do this very hard work of prayer that is so important to do it with the same intention and the same clarity that Elijah did, that we know who we're praying to, that we know who we are in light of who he is, and that we know why we're praying. And I think, ladies and gentlemen, that as a body of believers, that if we begin to engage in that prayer, whether it's individually in your prayer closet or corporately when we're all gathered together, that this is the type of prayer that leads to powerful prayers because it's less about us and it's more about him. And every movement, Every act of God, every time a neighborhood or a city was transformed, every time a revival happened, it was never about me. It was all about him. It was never about you. It was always about him. And so the importance here is, is that we flip the script. And that prayer is not about us anymore, but it's about who he is. So would you join me in praying right now? Father, we're looking to you and we're lifting your name on high because there's no name above it. But there's no one greater. There's no one worthy of our worship. There's nothing that we can go chasing after that's going to satisfy. There's no place where there's actually safety and refuge but in your arms. And so I pray, Lord, that today would be a day whereby your Spirit's Boldness and courage and prompting and through your words instruction that, Lord, we would pray differently. And, Lord, we confess that at times I have made it about me. And so I pray, Lord, that today it would be about you. And that from this day forward, Lord, that it would be about what do you want to accomplish, Lord? You're the potter. I'm the clay. I'm your instrument, Lord. And so I ask you that you would use me so that you be glorified. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. When you like and subscribe, this video reaches more people.